When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon, the threat, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Um, my name is Chris. If you guys do not know me, I'm one of the pastors here at Remedy. Um, as you can tell from the reading, we're going to be in Acts chapter 4. So if you want to open up your Bibles there, Acts chapter 4, verse 23 through 31. I feel like my voice is extra powerful. Woke up on the right side of the bed. Uh, let's pray. Um, Father, we are in desperate need of you every second of our lives. Um, you are the God who provides us the very breath uh, that we breathe. You are the sovereign Lord of the universe. You have created all that is both visible and invisible. We ask today that you would uh, reveal to us a glimpse of your glory in the face of your son Jesus, that we would see him and his beauty, and his gentleness, and his love in the scriptures. And Lord, when we take the supper later on together, uh, that he, he would be revealed to us in the breaking of bread. Um, we pray all these things for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. So I just want to catch us up in Acts, since we're just dropping in Acts 4. Um, in Acts 3... Peter and John, they heal a man who is crippled um, in the temple. And then crowds naturally surround them because they're interested in seeing what's going on. And then Peter and John proclaim the gospel of Jesus boldly. They, they proclaim the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, there's a group of leaders in the temple called the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection. And so at the, the, the hint of Jesus being raised from the dead... They kind of get aggravated, and they actually have Peter and John arrested in the beginning of chapter 4. And then Peter and John are kind of put to the test by none other than the very same group of men who were responsible for delivering Jesus over to Pontius Pilate to be crucified. And so what do they do? What do Peter and John do? Because in the last time in which Jesus was being delivered over, they all kind of cowered and shrank away from their Lord. And in this time, they proclaim to those very men the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
They say in verse 10 of chapter 4, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is salvation and no other name given under heaven among men. Now there's a pattern in Acts that should be interesting to us, particularly in the subject of prayer. There's a pattern. In Acts 1, after Jesus ascends, the disciples gather in prayer and waiting. In Acts 2, the Holy Spirit descends upon the church and they're filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And then they go out in Acts, kind of second half of Acts 2, all the way through our text today in Acts 4, and they're boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then in our text today, they gather again to pray and to wait. And then they're filled with the Holy Spirit and they go out in Acts 5 and they boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this pattern of praying, being filled with the Spirit, and then proclaiming boldly the gospel to those who are far away from God continues throughout the entirety of the book of Acts. So all this to say that prayer is linked in God's word to play a significant role in the gospel advancing to the nations and to the lost. And so uh, a few months ago, back in February, um, Pastor John preached along uh, the lines of praying for the lost. So prayer was seen as going. Um, today, we're also preaching about praying. And yes, there's an element of going in it, but we also want to show that Scripture teaches that uh, prayer is a component of gathering. Prayer is a, uh, a communal thing that is called for all of us who are following Christ to do uh, both individually, but especially with one another. One of the goals of the, the vision statement at Remedy was to shift prayer from Wednesdays to Sundays a monthly. So today we have our, our corporate prayer meeting. We also plan on, in June, shifting it from monthly to weekly. Why? Because the Word teaches that when the body of Christ gathers specifically to pray, there seems to be this pattern that then follows. The gospel of Jesus goes out boldly to those who are far away from God. So our text today commends to us the practice of praying together and even gives us an example of what an early church prayer meeting looked like. And there's a couple of questions that we can ask for ourselves today. Why should we become a praying church? And what does it look like to be a praying church? And so Luke, the author of Acts, he's going to point out several shaping factors for praying as a church. So let's look at the text. If you would look at verses 23 through 24 with me. The first point is kind of a... a really a minor point, but important. Testimonies encourage us to pray together. Testimonies encourage us to pray together. So Luke writes in 23 through 24, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God, end quote. 
And so sharing and praying go hand in hand. As soon as John and Peter are released from this kind of uh, this uh, intervention from this group that had actually sent Jesus to his own death on the cross, they went to a gathering of their own, their friends, and they reported what happened to them. And then Luke shifts to the perspective of the friends. And he says, um, he says, after and when they had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. The word behind friend, again, I just hinted at it, is, is quite literally their own. And so it, it's Peter and John went to their own. And there's a, there's a kind of cool sub point in there, right? That the blood of Christ makes us family. We are our own. We belong to one another because we're united to Jesus um, by faith. Um, so testimonies here, their report, which in this case, right, you could say it was maybe bad news, sprinkled in with good news. Sometimes our, our testimonies are good. Sometimes our testimonies might be bad. Oh, yeah, I went and shared the gospel and uh, nothing happened. I was rejected spot on. Or I went and shared the gospel and 10,000 souls were saved or somewhere in between, right? So sometimes the, the report is good or mixed. Nonetheless, the report ought to cause us to lift our voices up together to the Lord in prayer, which is what it does um, here. And so a praying people uh, will be also a sharing people. And a praying people will be stronger at praying when they become a people that share with one another what's going on in their lives and how the witness of Christ is going through uh, uh, in their lives. Look at the language they lifted their voices together. Um, so, sometimes this can actually mean they're quite literally saying the same words at the same time, like the Christological unison verse that we say um, every Sunday. Um, but more likely what this is drawing out is the unity of purpose behind the church, that Peter and John's successes were the church's successes, that Peter and John's hardships and persecutions were the church's hardships and persecutions, and Peter and John's prayer requests become the church's prayer requests. You see, when we share our burdens with one another, they become everybody's burdens. When we share our joys with one another, they become everybody's joys because we're a family. And so is this not the one thing the Lord Jesus Christ means uh, in beginning uh, kind of his formulaic prayer, the Lord's Prayer, when he says, he starts it off with, our Father, right? It's, it's one thing that he means. That our is so important. It's not just my Father. It's our Father. We are a family. We are in Christ together. We are brothers. We share our burdens that we might pray for one another's burdens. So the bottom line is testimonies can encourage us and should encourage us to pray together. And I just want to make a, a quick point on that note. Um, as a member of Remedy Church, if you have something that you want to share, there's several ways to share, um, and maybe we can invent even more. Uh, one really good way is to share with your community group. Um, another good way is to hop onto the Church Center app and share it, like if you know, in the Men's Fellowship or, or the Women's Group app, and say, hey, here's a prayer request. Um, if Kaveh's not here today, but he, he does that quite often. Um, share with the elders. If you want uh, a testimony to go out during corporate prayer, right, share with the elders. Or if you want to give a testimony during a Sunday service, share with the elders what's going on. Um, 
in your life. And so as we contemplate what to share, Luke is now going to turn and he's going to talk specifically about what shapes our prayers, what our prayers ought to look like, what they should be characterized by. So our second point is this. Our prayers should be shaped by God's words. Our prayers should be shaped by God's words. So look at 24 again. We're going to go from 24 to 26. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, um, end quote. So now the prayer that they pray goes from 24 all the way to 30. But for now, we're just going to focus on kind of 24 through 26. And I want to point out um, particularly how scripture informs their prayer. The early church prayer is an example of how our corporate prayer and our individual prayers ought to be shaped, tremendously shaped by God's word. Whether we think, speak, or sing our prayers because songs are prayers, we ought to use the language of scripture when speaking back to God. So where do we see that in our text? There's three places in those sets of verses that I just read. First, look at the opening line. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So let me read you a psalm. This is Psalm 146, verse 5. Who made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. Let me read you Exodus 20, verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. So we're starting to see a pattern here. Exodus 20 is at the end of the fourth commandment to remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Psalm 146 is one of the last five psalms. It's called the Hallelujah Psalms because it starts with praise Yahweh and it ends with praise Yahweh. And in that psalm, there's this theme of put not your trust in the, the government, in the rulers of this age, or even in man, right? But put your trust in the Lord. And how especially appropriate, because look at who, what the rulers of Peter and John's day are doing. They're taking them aside and they're rebuking them and telling them, stop preaching about this Jesus guy who was crucified and according to your testimony was resurrected. So both Psalm 146 and Exodus 20 fit with our passage because it's a direct quote. But where is that going from? Where do we learn that God is the Lord of heaven and earth and the sea and all that in him, that he created all those things? Genesis, right? Genesis chapter 1. So this term, sovereign Lord, draws our attention to the implication of that God is creator. Because he's creator, he's sovereign over everything he made, right? And this is how they begin their prayer. He is the Lord of the universe because he's the creator of the universe. So as we remind ourselves of his power without end and creating all that is, we are reminded that he truly is the sovereign Lord. So the early church begins their prayer, rooting itself in both creation and quoting the Psalms and the Ten Commandments. But there's another place um, that they also um, use scripture. Look at the very next part of verse 25. 
Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, um, end quote. So right there, they're quoting directly Psalm chapter 2, verse 1 um, through 2. And before kind of delving in what the psalm, how they're going to use the psalm in prayer, um, we'll do that a little bit later with verses 27 through 28. But first, I just want you to see that they're quoting directly from Psalm 2 and opening um, their prayer. So the opening line is from Psalm 146, Exodus 20, Genesis 1. And their next line is directly from Psalm 2. And this is an interesting point. You can use Scripture to pray. And that, that's an important point um, to make, that Scripture can inform your language and give you words to say back to God, just like the early church um, here. So where do we see a little bit of that? Look at verse 25. Who through the mouth of our Father... Your servant said, by the Holy Spirit. I read that verse probably 25 times. I read it in English 25 times, and I tried to attempt to read it in Greek 25 times. It was the most confusing verse I've ever come across in terms of how it like was laid out. And, you know, I was like, am I alone in this? And so I looked at um, this guy named Bruce Metzger. He's one of the, he's, he's dead now. Um, he's a dead old guy. Um, but he was a great textual um, scholar, textual critical scholar, and he wrote this. This is his summary of this verse. The text of this verse is in a very confused state. Thank, thank you, Bruce. You helped me a lot with that. I'm going to spare you the details of all the confusion of it, but there is one thing that no matter what theory or argument people put forward of this verse, there was one thing that was consistently true in all of um, their, their uh, speculations and theories. God spoke through David via the Holy Spirit. God spoke through David via the Holy Spirit. And this, is, this has to be what Paul means, right? In, in 2 Timothy 3.16, when he says, all scripture is breathed out by God. Paul does the ultimate Scrabble cheat code. He takes two words and he puts them and he makes one word. That was not a word before, but now it's a word. He takes the word, God, and he takes the word spirited, and he puts those two words together to explain what is going on in Scripture, that God quite literally is breathing out his words to us. He's spiriting his words. And that's quite literally what Acts is saying here, that God spoke through David by the Holy Spirit, that Psalm 2 was God-spirited through David. So how is that helpful for us? Scripture is God-spirited. It's not just for David. It's for the early church. It's also for us, the church now. So scripture is the heart of what God wishes to communicate. Scripture is God's communication translated into our very own heart languages. And here's the cool part. We can use scripture then to communicate back to God. In scripture, he teaches us language that we use to pray and I want to heartily recommend something to you. It's a pamphlet. That's what I call small books. Um, it's a book called Praying the Bible by Don Whitney. Praying the Bible by Don Whitney. But in it, he just outlines a very simple method of prayer that takes Scripture and um, shows you how to use it in your prayers. 
And the idea that Don Whitney says is basically all believers that are full of the Holy Spirit, they want to pray, but they tend to struggle with praying. And his supposition is pretty simple. It's because we get bored. And that sounds kind of sacrilegious. But what he argues is, is that we usually ask the same kinds of questions in prayer, you know, pray about my job, pray about my family, pray about my friends, pray about this certain situation, pray for my church. We, we tend to have the same kind of topics or themes of prayer. And so then we tend to say the same things over and over and over again. And it has a way of discouraging us from continuing to do it because we get bored with it. And so what he does is say, use the same five questions Start with a text of the Bible, read a line, and then use that text to inform the angle by which you pray for your family, the angle by which you pray for your church, the angle by which you pray for the gospel going forward. Um, so I recommend that to you guys to read. If you want to, uh, Andy's not here today. He's off um, doing actually some work. Um, Andy Pittman, find him. He actually has incorporated this method into his own prayer life. He could give you some some tips and testimonies on that. And if you want to see a copy of the book, you can talk to me at the end of the service. Okay, so they use creation, law, psalms to open up their prayer. They quote Psalm 2 directly, but there's another, there's a third way in which their prayer is informed by Scripture. G.K. Beale points this out in the commentary on the New Testament use of the Old Testament. He says that there are verbal links between Acts 4 and King Hezekiah's prayer found in Isaiah 37, 16 through 20. So there's a lot of verbal links, but there's other links as well, such as the same use of the word truly in verse 27 of our text, Isaiah 37, 18. The same use of the word and now Lord in verse 29 in Isaiah 37, 20. So there's lots of links between Hezekiah's prayer and this prayer here. So not only are they using scripture to fill their prayer with words back to God, they're using scripture to formulate and structure their prayers to God. Now, interesting enough, if you don't know King Hezekiah or the story behind Isaiah 37, go read Isaiah 37, but let me just give you a kind of highlight note. All of Judah, because Israel has been split into two kingdoms after Solomon, all of Judah, the southern kingdom, is being affronted by Assyria. There's an army of 185,000 Assyrian soldiers outside the capital of Jerusalem, basically on the verge of taking Judah. They had already previously taken the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity and destroyed them. And now Judah, the last standing remnant of God's people, is on the verge of being destroyed. And King Hezekiah lays out a prayer to God for deliverance. And there's an interesting difference here. So the early church is going to use that prayer to structure its prayer to God. And here's the difference. We see a difference between the way we relate to God in the covenants. In Isaiah, Israel was the testimony of the Lord, the only means of being in relationship with God. You had to be in covenant with Israel to be in covenant with God. To oppose Israel was to oppose God. Here in Acts... They don't pray for deliverance by means of the sword or even from the sword, but rather they pray for boldness for the gospel to continue going out to the enemies that affront them. They want Jesus to spread because Jesus is the fulfillment of all that came in the Old Testament, and he himself is the new covenant 
with us. He is the way we relate to God. God now relates personally through Jesus Christ rather than nationally uh, through Israel. So more on that in another time. So let's recap. Our prayers must be shaped by God's words. We see the beginning, the middle of their prayer as direct quotes from the law and the Psalms. And we see the overall, the, the overall structure of their prayer mimicking the prayer of Hezekiah in Isaiah 37. So as we grow as a praying church, may our prayers and our songs continue to more and more reflect and use the language of God's words. That would be the challenge. And I'll give you another kind of quick individual application that I've found helpful. Read the Bible cover to cover yearly. Now, the reason I say this is because once you create a habit of reading Scripture cover to cover over and over and over again, eventually you'll find that using Scripture in your prayer becomes more and more instinctual. Um, so that would be one way of starting to apply this idea of saturating our prayers with Scripture. All right, our third point comes from 27 through 28. Our prayers must be rooted in the sovereignty of God. Our prayers must be rooted in the sovereignty of God. Uh, Luke continues in 27 through 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servants, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place, end quote. So the prayer again begins with this rare word that's not often used in the New Testament, sovereign Lord, in verse 24. It begins with sovereignty. It's filled with sovereignty. Look at 27 through 28. And it ends with sovereignty. Look at 30, this call of God stretching out his hand to continue to do signs and wonders and miracles to accompany the gospel. So regardless of whether or not we're, we would claim to be reformed or not, every Christian, I hope, believes that God has the power to intervene and to change situations. Otherwise, why make requests in prayer to God? You see, when we go to God in prayer with requests, we have come to an end of ourselves. We are acknowledging that we cannot effectuate the changes that we are desiring whatsoever, that God alone can intervene. There's an old expression. Maybe you've never heard of it. I'm, I'm a nerd, a theological nerd, I guess. Um, work hard like an Arminian and pray hard like a Calvinist. Um, and that's a good expression. But prayer is an expression of faith and hope in God's power, that he can move the unmovable and shake the unshakable and change the unchangeable. And so look at the state of the church in Acts 4. It's small but growing quickly, but it's opposed in every way at every level of the government, all the way up to Nero Caesar himself eventually. It's, I think it's actually uh, Tiberius and then, but, and then Gaia and then Nero. Sorry. Um, but anyways, it's opposed in every way by every part of the government. No power to really do anything, much less survive. And what I think we oftentimes forget in our own lives is that every moment of our lives is like that, whether we realize it or not. We have no power within ourselves to do anything. We're really at the mercy of God, as I, I, I kind of spoke in the beginning in my prayer. We're at his mercy for our very breath, 
Every breath that we take is at the mercy of God. And so these Acts 4 believers here, they understood that, which is why sovereignty and scripture were interwoven throughout the entirety of their prayers. So let's do uh, two quick things. We're going to show the connection of 27 and 28 with Psalm 2, the psalm that they quoted. And then let's discuss, like, what is sovereignty in this passage? Um, So uh, let's outline something. Uh, These early believers read Psalm 2 and actually saw it as being fulfilled in their time, right when they were praying this prayer. They, They saw it as being fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Christ, and it continued to be fulfilled in how the government was opposing the church and how they were being treated outside of it. So Psalm 1-2 structure is as follows. Part 1, nations rage. Part 2, people's plot in vain. Part 3, the kings set themselves up against. And then part 4, the rulers gather against. And then it shows us over here, part 5, who are they against? The Lord and his anointed. Now look at the text in 27 through 28. We see part 5. Against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. We see part three in King Herod. We see part four in Pontius Pilate. We see part one, the nations. And we see part two in the peoples of Israel. So Herod was the king of the Jews of sorts and corresponds with the kings set themselves against. Pontius Pilate was a Gentile ruler and corresponds with the rulers gathering against. Gentiles, nations, corresponds with nations raging, and the peoples of Israel correspond with the people's plot in vain. So Tertullian, an early church father, he says it this way. It's a good um, summary of the correspondence between Psalm 2 and Acts 4. He says, in the person of Pilate, the nations raged. In the person of Israel, the peoples planned vain things. The kings of the earth stood up in Herod, And in Annas and Caiaphas, the high priests, the rulers were gathered together. And so the church saw, not only in Jesus' death and resurrection, the fulfillment of this psalm, but in the continued opposition of the church, the fulfillment of this psalm. So this was true of Jesus' sham of a trial, his unjust execution on the tree, but it's continuing to be true in the same Uh, with the very same people against the church of Jesus Christ. And so why would that fill them with hope? Why would that be a a hint at sovereignty? Psalm 2 was written approximately a thousand years before Jesus died and was was crucified and was resurrected. It was written a thousand years before the church was opposed opposed by Pontius Pilate and all these guys. This prophecy was fulfilled in their sight. And that taught them a very true and important fact. God is sovereignly orchestrating what is going on around them. This was Paul's first lesson uh, that what is done to the church is done to Christ, right? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now the church was able to see the fulfillment of scripture and be filled with confidence because this was written thousands of years ago, and now they're watching it be fulfilled. And this fills them with assurance. Hence, they start the prayer with, Sovereign Lord. But what does it mean that God is sovereign here? Elephant in the room, 
the word is used. The word, that blessed, most fearful word, predestined. It's right there in the text. I'm not making it up. Look at 28. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It's the only time in Scripture outside of Paul's letters uh, that we actually see that word. And it means exactly what it sounds like it means in this verse. God had a plan that was predestined to take place. It means that God ordained something before it happened. It means that he set limits to something before it took place. It means that he predetermined, foreordained, or marked out beforehand um, something that hadn't yet taken place. Simply put, verse 28 is an application of seeing Scripture fulfilled before our very eyes. The church saw this thousand-year-old psalm come to pass in the life and death of Jesus, and the lesson learned is that God used the nation's rage, the people of Israel's plots, King Herod setting himself against, and the ruler Pontius Pilate and the high priest gathering together. God used all of that to do whatever his hand and his plan had predestined to take place. So this points out a couple things. God is wise and powerful. He can navigate multiple choices of multiple people to continue to bring about his sovereign plan. Um, Calvin helpfully points out, he brought attention to the word plan and hand. Because you could leave it at, oh, God is just infinitely wise and he sets up this plan from a distance and it just kind of unfolds and it's kind of mechanical, right? But it's not just a plan. It's also what his hand had brought about. And so God is actually intimately there. He's at hand length interacting with his creation, bringing about his sovereign plan. And what was his sovereign plan? That Jesus Christ would die on behalf of sinners for the forgiveness of their sins, and on the third day would raise from the dead, offering eternal life to all who believe in him. And as God's sovereignty in Acts 4 and in the life of Jesus was all for the sake of the advancement of that message going to the nations. So our prayers uh, must prioritize the advancement. So let's look at this last point regarding prayers, how they are characterized, because it's not actually the last point. Our prayers must prioritize the advancement of the gospel. Verse 29 through 30. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. At the end of their prayer, which praises the Lord for sovereignty, honors the word of God by using it to shape and to literally be the words of their prayer, they finally make a request. I mean, they've been going this whole time, and now we finally get to a part where they ask God for something, right? They make a request. And there's two petitions, and there's kind of one assumption in their request. So the first petition is easily missed. It's easy to read over it. Lord... Look upon their threats. That's the first request. Lord, look upon their threats. It rings like King Hezekiah's prayer. He prayed something similar in Isaiah 37. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. 
Hear all the words of the signature of the Assyrian leader, which he has sent to mock the living God. You see, they're not actually telling God to give them something here. Rather, they're just saying, Lord, look, look, see, hear their threats. There could be a twang of, Lord, give us justice, but we don't see that here necessarily. There could be that, but I think it's more of a call for solidarity. Lord, look upon their threats. They threaten us, your children. Be with us in the midst of our suffering. The second petition, which is easier to see, grant to your servants strength to continue to speak your word with all boldness. The word grant is just the, the Greek word for give. Um, sovereignty still wraps around nearly every word of their prayer. Give us the ability to continue to speak boldly the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not even that is left up to their power, right? Not even speaking Jesus to people. They don't even say, oh, we have the power to do that. They take that to God because they need that as well. The two petitions are then followed by the assumption. Look at the end. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. It's not a request, it's an assumption. An assumption that God will continue to be intimately involved with the world and through his church for the sake of his holy servant, Jesus. That God will continue to heal and perform signs and wonders that the gospel might advance around the world and that the witness of Christ might be heard by all. So on that note, one common question that comes up is, does God still do signs and wonders? Does God still do miraculous healings? I just want to state we have nothing from my vantage point in Scripture or in the history of the church or in personal experience to answer that question saying no. God does still do these things. Time and time again, we hear testimonies regarding healing and other various miracles. History is sprinkled with miracle testimonies. Most often, I think these reports come to us from the frontier places of the world, the places where there is little to no gospel witness amongst unreached people groups. And Christians go out there to proclaim the gospel, and often we hear of miraculous signs and wonders. And really, that's the pattern that we're shown in the book of Acts. As God establishes his church and the church's witness amongst the unreached places, he oftentimes accompanied them with signs and wonders. But he always accompanied them with bold proclamation of the gospel. So I feel confident, Remedy, that we too can assume that God will still intimately accompany us in signs and wonders as we continue to seek the spread of his word boldly, particularly in the places where it's not. But here's some questions for us to contemplate in our hearts today. Do we care about the advancement of the gospel? Where are we looking to share Christ with those who are far away from him? What faraway places and peoples are we looking to send members out from amongst ourselves? Is the proclamation of the gospel a priority in our individual lives? Is it a priority as a church, our corporate lives? Is it a priority for us globally? Do we want to see those who have no witness hear of the glory of Christ? 
If we can answer yes to all three of those, that's good. If there's one of those that we're kind of hesitant, or maybe we're even answering no, I would urge us to repent. Ask God to soften our hearts and to show us the importance of bearing witness to Christ in our individual lives and in our lives corporately. So our fifth and, and final point, and this one's simple, God answers prayers. Because we, we see testimonies can spur on our prayers. We see different things that can characterize our prayers, but thank God, God answers our prayers. And this is verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. End quote. So at the beginning of this uh, sermon, I sketched out briefly Acts 1 through 5 and showed the kind of pattern. Well, again, that similar prayer meeting in Acts 1 that led to Pentecost is uh, very similar to what's going on here. Um, commentator Dr. Kistmacher observes the differences between Acts 4 and Acts 2, and, and even the differences are very similar, and I think it's helpful for us to see this pattern. The only differences between Pentecost and this prayer session were the following. The blowing wind versus the shaking place. The external evidence of tongues of fire versus the internal manifestation of courage. The ability to speak in other languages versus a boldness to speak the word of God now. And so there's a very similarity thing, similar thing going on. In our text, we see God answers their prayers very directly. It says, they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. But how did the boldness come about? They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Too much confusion can come, come when discussing this idea of what is the filling of the Holy Spirit. People have built careers. People have built churches, all based on various interpretations of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But I want to point out a few things from Luke um, in Acts. Peter has now been filled with the Holy Spirit Three times in Acts. He was filled at Pentecost in chapter 2, verse 4. He was filled again when speaking to the authorities, and he was arrested in verse, chapter 4, verse 8. And he's filled again amongst this congregation at the end of this chapter in verse 31. And in each of those cases, there was one commonality. Peter and others proclaimed the gospel of Jesus boldly to those around them. In Luke's writings, you'll find that being filled with the Holy Spirit always results in speech about God's words to others. So here those two aspects are connected intimately, he says here in Acts. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So the point here is simple. God answers prayers. But how does he answer his prayers? Um, a number of years ago, um, I spoke on Luke 11, and uh, more recently in the Vision series, Pastor Joe spoke uh, his two-part series on the glory of God to kick off the Vision series. In both of those sermons, this point came up, how does God answer our prayers? And the statements kind of made, God always answers our prayer. Normally what kind of cliche follows that is, but sometimes it's no, right? That's kind of the cliche. God always answers our prayers, but sometimes he says no. Um, that makes sense to a certain degree, but that's actually not seemingly what Scripture's stating. Scripture states that God is always answering our prayers, 
And it's always by giving more of the Holy Spirit to his people and conforming them more into his will and into his image. So um, Luke 11 says this, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So again, that last phrase, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Uh, We might not always articulate in our prayers, Lord, give us your Holy Spirit, like the church does here in Acts 4, but our Father who is in heaven knows how to give to his children more than what they ask for. Namely, he gives the Holy Spirit that we might be more and more conformed to his will, that our prayers might echo that of our elder brother Jesus, not my will, but your will be done. So as we continue to aspire and take concrete steps to grow in praying together. May we be a sharing people. May we be a people whose prayers are shaped by scripture, rooted in sovereignty, aimed at advancing the gospel. And may we know that God always gives to his children the Holy Spirit. He always answers his children. So I want to conclude by going back to Psalm 2, because there's more there. There's a lot more there. Um, I kind of learned this interesting fact about first century Judaism a long time ago when I heard Jesus's phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me from the cross? Well, he's quoting Psalm 22.1, and oftentimes rabbis, teachers, followers of Yahweh, they would quote the first verse or a couple verses of a psalm, intending then for the entirety of the psalm to be brought to memory of those that they're speaking to. And so if you do that with Psalm 22, you're rewarded greatly because then you see, you find in that psalm, right, that they're casting dice, they're casting lots for Jesus' clothes in Psalm 22, that they're piercing his hands and his feet, right? You find some of these similar things that that psalm, quite literally thousands of years before it happened, shows us that Jesus is crucified, Psalm 22 being another God-spirited psalm of David. Well, we see the same principle here in Psalm 22. So Luke elsewhere uses Psalm 2 in describing Jesus. He uses it of Jesus' baptism in Luke 3. God the Father pronounces over his son at the end of the baptism, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And this is a combination of two things. Psalm 2-7, You are my son. And Isaiah 42-1, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. All this is layered into Jesus' baptism, which, again, includes the spirit descending upon Jesus, which sounds very similar to our text. We pray, and the spirit fills the church for bold proclamation. That Luke had Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42 in mind at the baptism is assured, but he also has them in mind and Acts 4. How do we see this? Well, we saw Psalm 2, but we also see that they call Jesus Holy Servant multiple times. And this is to connect him to the servant songs of Isaiah, in which Isaiah 42 is one of the servant songs. And so Jesus is God's anointed son and his holy servant that is suffering his death 
upon the cross, his resurrection was according to the plan and hand of the Father, and that Christ is offered to the nations, and the nations are offered to Christ. That Christ did this ironically for the very people who had opposed him. So let me read the rest of Psalm 2. This is verses 7 through 12 in Psalm 2. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. End quote. So in the peoples, the nations, the kings, and the rulers are all warned. Not only are they against him in the psalm, but then they're later warned to take refuge in him, to kiss the son. It is this dual path offered throughout history. Kiss the son or perish in the way. And this is kind of my appeal to you, whether you're a believer or not a believer. I appeal to you to kiss the son today. Kiss him with the kiss of faith. Because the psalm promises, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Little did we know that our sinful rejection of God and his son led to our only means of salvation from his son. His, his mockery, we made a mockery of him. We falsely accused him during his trial through our doubt and our hate. We spit upon him and scourged him and crowned him with thorns through our sin and our rebellion. We stripped him naked and nailed him to the tree because of our suppression of the truth and our rejection of God's word. And as we did all of these things, we did whatever God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. That namely, Jesus' death upon that very tree where we put him, our sin put him there, and that his resurrection from the grave uh, forgives us of our sins, restores us back to a relationship with God. So again today, I just appeal to us as a church that we would kiss the Son with the kisses of faith, that we would sing to him songs of thanksgiving, for blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for informing us in your word of so many things. Thank you that your word always leads us to Jesus. Um, thank you that today we get to see that Jesus is the Lord of nations, that though he was betrayed and opposed by nations, kings, and rulers, though he was betrayed and opposed by our own sinfulness, all of that led to them making a way for us to be reconciled to God. So I just pray that you would show us that Jesus has mercy and love for those who are his enemies, and that even now he beckons us to, to return to him, to be forgiven by him, to be comforted by him, to come and find refuge from our own selves and from the world and from Satan in him. I pray today, Lord, as we um, sing, as we take your supper, um, that we would do so with hearts of faith and hearts full of thanksgiving. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.